Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Sarah Soleimani. In this episode, we discuss Sarah's creative journey and her wide range of talents from acting and writing and producing and directing. As she describes her creative process, I am in awe of Sarah's originality and artistic vision. And we also talk about some of her activist work. And I left this conversation so incredibly inspired, not just by her professional work, but how she thinks and her compassion and kindness. Please enjoy this interview with the incredibly talented Sarah Soleimani. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And I would like to thank Daniel Ingram for connecting us. So a very big thank you to Daniel. My lovely husband. It is such a pleasure to have an amazing creative and such a talent on the show. So thank you so much for joining Now, before we get into your incredible work with recent projects like Ridley Road and Chivalry, I'd love to rewind your very, very long highlight reel all the way back um, before even the him and her or Bridget Jones days and share with our listeners where you grew up. I grew up in North London in Crouch End. I had a pretty sweet childhood. My parents were teachers in secondary schools. They became university lecturers later on. My mum taught sociology and my dad taught maths. I had a good childhood, happy, and I had a little sister, Anna. Sadly, when I was 16, my mum got cancer and passed away. I experienced quite a bleak, painful, dark time. But coincidentally, that painful time was also when I discovered the theatre and I got accepted into the National Youth Theatre, which is the largest state-funded youth programme in England. It was the summer that she died that I began acting. I got the letter of my acceptance a week after she passed away, so she never knew I actually got in, even though I'd done my audition speeches for her in the hospice. And then off I went on a mad journey of performing and acting and then writing. So you knew you wanted to be in entertainment? Yeah, I had this weird drive to acting. I couldn't really articulate it. My parents obviously weren't in the business. They didn't know anyone in the business. It's a weird one because I didn't consciously understand why I was being drawn to it. But I was just like, I'm off to the light, finding classes, finding organizations, trying to find an agent, writing CVs and having photos done, just keeping going until I was there, wherever there is. And whether you ever feel you've arrived is another question. In your gap year, you did the National Youth Theatre and then you decided to go to university. Is that right? I'd done youth theatre in my summers as school. And then when I left school, because I'd had an agent, I got a job in the Western production of The Graduate. And I played Elaine Robinson to Linda Gray's Mrs. Robinson, Linda Gray, famous Sue Ellen from Dallas. So my gap year, I was actually pretty much on the stage for eight months eight shows a week. And I had a membership to the Groucho Club, which is 
a senior members club in Soho. It was before they had credit cards or cash. So there's no money exchange, meaning you would just get a bill on your dressing room door every month. So it was like a free bar and my friends would come and it would just always be on me. So you can imagine my wages went. I was just running around Soho doing this show and having a wild time. And then I did my first TV job, which was Red Cap, which was this military drama with Tamsin Outhwaite, who later ended up being in my show, Ridley Road. And then I was at the National Theatre and I did a show called Sanctuary by Tanika Gupta. And we toured that. So before I went to university, I'd already done a lot of stage work and some filming. You were a member of the Cambridge University's Footlights Drama Club or Dramatic Club, where you went down in history there when you wrote this fabulous sketch brawl that included 25 women in the sketch, right? Can you share more about that Footlights experience? So there was a weird rule when I arrived that everyone sort of rolled their eyes at, but no one changed. There would only be one girl in the troupe. Footlights, for those who don't know, is the comedy group from Cambridge University. And a lot of famous alumni have come from there. And it's an iconic institution and everyone is very impressed by it, as I was when I arrived and saw some incredible comedians and incredible writing and performing. But there was this one girl rule, which made it quite hard to write sketches because you only perform stuff you actually wrote. And I kind of ran out of scenarios where I'd be the only girl. When I became vice president, I wrote a massive sketch about society ladies' cocktail party. It wasn't the most sophisticated writing. And then it turned into like a football riot brawl. So we were throwing chairs at each other and stuff. What did you do after university? Because of Footlights, I've been writing every two weeks. You put on a show. So I had this muscle of writing and performing and knowing my audience, the students. And then when I left, I started doing characters with Olivia Poulet, an actress and writer. We had a double act. We would do shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. We'd do shows above pubs. And I wrote my first play, Pray for the Souls of Martha and Veronica, which is a two-hander with Sarah Campbell. We did that at Edinburgh and did that above pubs. And then there was this incredible new writing scene in London, a lot of state-funded arts programs, the Young Vic, the Old Vic, the Royal Court, the National Theatre, Theatre 503. They had all these programs where you could just turn up and write. And that's where I cut my teeth. I didn't even realise it at the time, but everyone had a theatre company and was encouraging writers to put on work. Before you knew it, the years have gone by and you've put on 12 plays and realised, and David Mamet calls it the verdict of a paying audience. They're not your family and friends. They're the paying public. And you've put on a play and you'll really find out how good you are by people who've paid for a ticket. And I remember one of my first plays, I'd cried my eyes out. I was laughing hysterically. It was the best thing that ever been written. And I turned around and half the audience had left and the half that were there were asleep. It was quite a brutal awakening. It was a good awakening because I knew I felt something because I'd cried and I'd laugh. And I turned around to the audience that were asleep and I was like, well, I've got to figure out a way to let them feel how I feel my determination to become a better writer kicked in. When I look at your IMDb, it is a long, long list of projects. But maybe we can talk about some of the more recent ones, uh, starting with Ridley Road. I was very lucky to attend your incredible LA premiere of Ridley Road. And it was exceptional. And I didn't, I mean, I, it was my first premiere. I didn't know what to expect. But from the very first episode that played, and even the first minute or two, it grabbed your attention and then it kept it the whole way. I mean, it was incredible. I couldn't wait to, to watch the second episode. Can you share how that happened? Did you read like Bloom's book and just get so inspired? Or what was that creative process like? I read the book by Joe Bloom. Ridley Road is a story based on true events of a fascist revival in 1962. So a group of neo-Nazis held swastikas in Trafalgar Square for a rally and through Jewish areas. Ridley Road was a predominantly Jewish area at the time. 
And it was perfectly legal under freedom of speech. You could get a permit by the council and have these fascist hate spewing rallies. Because it was legal, there was the protesters, the anti-fascist Jewish men and women, a lot of whom had been servicemen and fought in the war, clubbed together to form their own resistance group. And a lot of the time they were arrested. So I thought it was a fascinating piece of British history that a lot of us don't know about or maybe in denial about. We like to think that fascism died with Hitler in the bunker and that we were on the right side of history. But it became about an eight-year journey on getting the rights, writing the scripts, trying to find a home for it, which we struggled. And then eventually the BBC agreed to make it, which was fantastic, and PBS in the States. And then we went on this epic journey, including COVID and shutting down and starting up again and shutting down because we had an actor ill. And anyone who has been filming in the last few years, I think, can relate to it. But eventually we got there and we're incredibly proud of it. And we had this beautiful premiere, as you said, in Hollywood. And it's been an incredible response. It was a spectacular premiere. And I remember I told my husband when I came back from L.A. that we needed to watch it together because it was so well done and I I knew he would love it too. And so fast forward a little bit along the history timeline, uh, quite a bit. But speaking of history, it makes me think of your other show called Chivalry. And that has an incredible cast alongside you with Steve Coogan and Wanda Sykes and Sienna Miller. And it's a six-episode comedy drama about the sexual politics in the wake of the Me Too movement. How did, how did that show come about? Steve Coogan and I had done a film together called Greed with Michael Winterbottom and Me Too had just happened. So we were talking about it and debating it and laughing as well. We agreed there weren't many TV shows that captured both sides of the argument of a dialectic of people from different sides of the aisle talking to each other. We agreed that that would be something that we would be interested in watching. And that was the starting point. We kept thinking about it and meeting and writing and finally Channel 4 said they wanted to make it. Got these incredible cameos in Wanda Sykes and Sienna Miller and Paul Rudd pops in and John C. Riley pops in. And it really looks at gender politics in the wake of Me Too and how men and women relate to each other. But it doesn't really take a side. It's a satire on all sides. And the idea of watching your back in a new landscape where you may feel policed, but also a great liberation that comes from what Me Too was, which was this great global confession and reckoning of past behaviours, which we now find unacceptable. So it was a very dense, but hopefully quite funny show. With that incredibly funny cast, I'd, it would be hard not to be hilarious because they're all so good. Now, you've done comedy, you've done drama, you've done long-form projects and short projects. Is there an ideal kind of medium for your creativity? It's not so much the medium. I think it's the creative freedom that feels very supported. So I've been very lucky with my collaborators and Steve with Chivalry, with Nicholas Schindler, who produced Ridley Road. It's such a collaborative medium making any film or piece of television. It's a fine line between feeling very free, but also very safe and guided because the people you're working with are sort of your first audience. For me, anything that I'm being creatively free, but I'm also saying something or helping unpack a knot or a question that the culture is grappling with or maybe feeling overwhelmed by. I feel like my work is trying to put hope, not in a saccharine way, but in a meaningful way, in a persuasive way, because I think there's a lot to be hopeful for, even though often we feel like we should dismay being alive and being alive in this moment. I think that even in the darkest corners or a place of abuse and violation, there is still a lot to embrace and draw out and rejoice in. That was so beautifully said. Do you get more energy from whether it's writing or acting or directing or producing, but is there one area that you get more energy in performing? 
It's funny you talk about getting more energy because often you feel it's a lot of giving energy. Every time I'm immersed in one craft, I get envious of the other. Ridley Road I wrote on my own. We don't tend to have writing rooms or teams in the UK. And I so envied actors who could turn up and say the lines that I'd been agonizing for months on and talk to each other. And then, of course, when I'm acting, it's so vulnerable making, being in front of a camera and bearing your soul. And you have to go and you have to dig deep. So I so envied being a writer, being at home, not in heels, not in the cold. Both have their strengths, obviously, and their challenges. But I think when I'm writing something that I'm acting in, it's an incredible feeling because you're birthing the whole story. And especially with comedy, which is so much about rhythm, you're delivering the line exactly the way it was written on the page in your head. And it's sort of a song that becomes a song that you deliver. And when it works, not that it works all the time, but on the occasion that it does, you really do feel like you're a composer of a great symphony. I love that analogy. And I could, I mean, honestly, I could ask you so many more questions and talk to you for hours and hours about just Ridley Road and Chivalry alone. But <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to, to talking about that more in person, and hopefully in the future. But let me switch over to the questions I ask everybody on the show, starting with who or what inspires you to do the work that you do? I think, to be honest, because there hasn't been centuries of prominent female storytellers, the people that inspire me or that I look up to aren't in cinema or or in television, although there are certain exceptions to that, and I can appreciate beautiful works of art. But the people that I am drawn to reading about are the unknown, unsung heroes in politics, mostly, or in fights for justice, like the Iranian lawyer Shirin Abadi, who has an extraordinary story of fighting for human rights, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize against the Iranian regime. Or Fawzia Kufi, who I've got the honor of adapting her story to screen, who was the highest ranking female politician in Afghanistan, who campaigned for women to have education and literacy and maternal health. She's in exile from the Taliban. Or Leymar Gabawi in Liberia, who helped organize a sex strike to oust the warlord Charles Taylor. These are all women, women of color, women whose names aren't necessarily in the mainstream but who have dedicated their lives tirelessly to fight for justice, who've overcome incredible odds and survived. I mean, Farazia had several assassination attempts on her. She's shown me the bullet wounds in her arms where she's been shot at by the Taliban. And despite all of that, they have an incredible zest for life. Farazia, as well as someone I laugh with, we make jokes with each other. Those are the people that have made huge sacrifices. But actually, whether it's in politics or in entertainment, it's the sense of this enormous imaginative capacity. Their imaginations are so clear and vast that that guides their daily life, even if the daily life isn't full of hope or promise. And I think it's that imaginative capacity that women and men, when they live to that and honor that, that inspires me hugely. Those are names I, I didn't know. And I love that you'll be amplifying those names for others. Um, I'm also sure the name Sarah Soleimani will be on many people's inspirations list, not just for your creative work, but also for your activist work, specifically championing uh, sex working rights for the past, what, two decades? Can you share more about that? I've become a sort of advocate for sex work decriminalization because it to me doesn't make any sense in the UK and in the US, actually. But my work's mainly been in the UK. We have these laws that make our poorest and most vulnerable women very unsafe and also criminals. If a woman sells her sex 
And if she gets robbed or raped, she's more likely to be arrested if she goes to the police than her perpetrator prosecuted. And it just feels unimaginably unfair and unjust, but it also seeps into every layer of society. Often we think of feminism as glass ceiling down and a measure of our successes is how many women are in the boardroom. But for me, feminism is from the streets up. And how are we treating these women who, for whatever reason, have maybe made not a choice, but have made a decision in a circumstance that's very different to you or I? And I think we should remove those laws. I think we should save police time. Sex workers, prostitute women are often on the front lines of really dangerous, psychotic men. Whenever there's a serial killer, they'll target sex workers first. We should have good alliances with the police so that they can report dangerous men and protect all of us and not live in shame, not live with horrific stigma, not be criminalised so that they can never leave it and that they're destined to a life within sex work. We're still campaigning to change the law. It's a long journey. It's not one that politicians flock to. I don't think it polls well. I don't think it gets electoral success. But it's one that I won't stop until the law's changed and these vulnerable women are not criminalised. That's incredible. And I don't know if the listeners will agree. I mean, I I think it's clear you really infuse so much compassion and heart in your work, both creative and activist work. And it's from the unsung heroes you mentioned to the early sex workers. It's just that's awesome to hear from you. Now, switching gears and thinking about the name of the show, I would imagine in the field of entertainment, there would be a lot of failure and rejection. And I remember interviewing Lindsay Benner, who is a professional juggler and entertainer. And in her interview, she mentioned something that as she's juggling, there is a beauty and joy in the drop. And she said, I know that sounds crazy, but the joy of the drops gave her just more experience, more growth. And from every drop that she had, she just ultimately learned. And so she kind of kind of said, you know, you embrace that joy of the drop. And so given your background and perspective of all the work you do from screenwriting and producing and directing and, and, all, and acting, can you share your thoughts, you know, in terms of failure? You know, when you can do personal too, but I'm curious whether there's anything professional to share that people can listen and learn from. Oh, I love that. The joy and the drop. That's a good one. I think that's what I was referring to. I think talked about clearing the room, clearing your audience or sending your audience to sleep. It's the way you learn to get better. You listing things I've done is a bit of a surprise because it could be seen as a list of failures or nearlies. Sometimes I think of calling my memoir nearly and the parts that you nearly get, the lives you could have had. It dawned on me that because I've had different kinds of success in different fields, and because I genuinely do enjoy, especially screenwriting, which is, takes up most of my time now, whether it gets made or not, obviously you do everything you can with Ridley Road that was about activism as it was about screenwriting, because I was trying to campaign that these themes and these stories get told. But as long as you're enjoying the journey, then the destination is kind of out of your control. But at the same time, I do use each failure or surprise because failure in entertainment is also lack of connection. An audience, they're not connecting to what you're saying. You're not getting the job. They're not connecting you as the person they've written on the page. And each failure is sort of a clue in the direction you need to go or facet of yourself that needs to be looked at, or maybe a mask that you're putting on, which is blocking you emotionally or truthfully somehow. I'm hungry for information about really connecting to audience. Now I'm at a stage of my career where I am making shows and I'm seeing ratings. 
the shows that rise in ratings every week and the shows that fall in ratings every week. And so now I'm sort of fascinated. How do you keep people watching without compromising on what it is you want to say or the respect you have for their intelligence? Because sometimes things get increased ratings that don't strike you as that intelligent or well-crafted, but everyone loves them. So there's a special space where you can bring everyone with you. I believe, I haven't found it yet. I may die trying, but somewhere for me is that populist space for something beautiful and meaningful. And that's where I'm endlessly swimming to. That story you shared earlier where you're on the stage performing and then when you had looked up, half the crowd had either left or the other half was nearly asleep, but you felt a connection and had a positive experience from it. How do you think about moments or projects or experiences like that when you reflect back? And how do you think about that in terms of learning to grow from it? What made it a moment of reflection and not just shame was the company spirit that you form in a theatre, which is very different to a TV environment. You're a team and you're working together to try and make something. And actually, a lot of the actors and the company really believed in the material and they were getting a lot out of the material. It protected me from feeling really inadequate and ashamed of myself. But it was still like, it's not enough that all of the practitioners are united and feel confident. There's this other space. Shortly after that, I wrote another one that did connect and everyone was laughing and everyone was moved and everyone was talking about it afterwards. That's sort of the exception to the rule. But that's the beauty of public funded arts. You get to learn. And once you feel that rush and you know it's possible, then you keep striving to reach again. I mean, not everyone feels the same as me. A lot of artists or comedians, the expressing themselves is it. Whether people get it or not is not up to them. And people accept that they might die kind of unknown and unappreciated. I feel slightly different. I am in service of the audience in some way. In service of the audience. I love that. Is there a project or period of your life where you felt the most growth, what you know, is a really tough project or a certain environment that you found to be the most kind of transformative kind of experience for you? The phone stopped ringing. I had done a couple of sitcoms and I ran out of money. I didn't know what to do. And I think I was evicted. I ended up working in a call center, like a telemarketing place. It was only a low ego point. But what I didn't realize was that I was learning skills in selling, which actually helped me out when I moved to Hollywood. You would cold call people all day, every day for like a year. And you had a piece of A4 paper on the wall and they go, hello. And you go, hi. And then you just spiel off this pitch. And you never believed that anyone would listen to this whole A4 page, but they did. And I started selling and I started learning the art of the hard clothes, which women tend not to be very good at, which is when you've laid out the pitch, you've got on, and now you have to ask them for something, you have to ask for their money. And it's a bit of a standoff and it might get nasty, but it's necessary to close it. You don't learn this in the arts because we're all about being expressive and truthful, empathetic and blah, blah, blah. But learning those basic sales techniques forced to, because I didn't have any other means of an income, cracked something in me that I still use. And I was so miserable. I was crying every day. And there were people there that had been there for decades. They'd be like, you'll be out of here soon, Sarah. And I still keep in touch with them. You know, we did become close, but I would never dream that it would have been the most formative moment for me at my lowest career point. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And if you could please teach me how to sell and the art of hard closing, that would be great. <laughs> I guess it's a skill I, I need to enhance still. But if you don't mind just kind of double clicking on that, what were some of the things in learning how to sell that, that you were surprised by or that others can maybe learn from? The psyche of the salesman has to be of confidence, of complete 
unwavering certainty in what they are offering. And it sounds quite obvious, but it is often overlooked, particularly by women. So for example, I was running a room where I had to hire writers. So I put a call out to writers I knew. Within minutes, most of the men I'd gone on doing this new show, do you want to write on it, had forwarded me their samples. Here's my samples. I'm going to be included. And the women who were often more experienced, but I've got one thing, but let me just do a polish. And I'm not sure if this is any good. And it was really obvious the difference between presenting and not. And I see it in younger girls that I mentor, the lack of confidence. And without it, you don't stand a chance, to be perfectly blunt. Even if, okay, if you're being totally honest, maybe that last scene could have do with it, doesn't matter. How do you expect people to invest? And the thing about filmmaking or television is it's millions, it's sometimes tens of millions that you're asking people to invest in you. And if you're not 100% confident, then you need to figure out why and do the work, especially with Ridley Road. You know, I absolutely knew this was good stuff. And so I could keep touting it like a salesman for so long. And I'm still touting it now. I think that absolute faith and self-belief is key. Did that experience change how you worked, you know, it, whether acting or producing, but having learned that lesson of strong sales strategy and self-belief? With acting, it's a different beast because you are the product. So they either like it or they don't. You are either what they imagined or not. And there's actually very little salesmanship you can do in an audition, for example. But what you can do is, well, desperation is a good one to leave at the door and just go, well, it's nothing to do with me. Because often it's your life force. I mean, it's just your essence that they're feeling. And go, I'm just going to be as authentic and truthful as I can in this artificial moment. A lot of acting is just switching off your analytical voice in your brain and just trying to be very in the moment of it. That is a huge challenge, actually, to not carry all your past failures every time you go into an audition room. And you can see it in some actors. They've just been eroded years and years of rejection and then bringing that into the room. And nobody wants to watch that. There's one podcast I, I like to listen to, and it's called Smartless with uh, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes and Will Arnett. And they they just talk to other kind of celebrities, actors, entertainers. And in one of the episodes, I remember they talked about how many rejections and how humbling the experience of auditioning is. And just the, the idea of it, there's just so much pressure and it's so intense. For big stars, I don't think it's the same. But certainly when you're jobbing, you think you've got to some sort of level and then you're humbled again. For example, I did the Bridget Jones New Best Friend and the Bridget Jones Baby film. It was a huge hit in the UK. I was on the cover of magazines and I got nominated for a performance award and we did the red carpet, people screaming my name. And the week after I had to come to LA for something and I did an audition and I don't really audition, if I can help it. And I did the scene and the casting director looked at me and went, it's supposed to be comedic. And I went, oh, oh all right. You know, I did it again, did nothing and it's left. And I just thought, God, you can go from like people screaming your name on the red carpet to that. When you're in that kind of environment, you have to sort of dig deep. You just want to kill yourself. Well, Sarah, we've talked about numerous projects you've been in and created, but we haven't touched on a lot of the awards that you've received and the accolades um, with all the, the work that you've developed. But is there one in particular or a couple that you're the most proud of? I have to say I'm immensely proud of Ridley Road. The premiere that you came to, it was this rooftop cinema vibe and we had this klezmer band and cocktails. And I just had this moment when I first arrived in LA and I didn't know anyone and my credit card didn't work because it's British and I didn't have a phone or a car or you know, I didn't have any of this stuff. And to be here and sharing this 
piece of history that no one knew about that we can learn from and also be inspired by because these people were successful activists. They pushed the far right to the fringes of British politics and they didn't want any credit for it. They disappeared often anonymously. And there was something about no one wanting to do it and keeping going and getting through it. But also the community that I had formed in the years since I've lived here and my friend Tabitha Denham did the Q&A and my friend Gina, who runs this Mascal company, did the bar and my friend Mark did the photography. And it's about cultivating community as much as it is about career. And I'm proud to have contributed to that as much as anything. Wonderful. I'll try to link the show somehow in the show notes because I just, I loved it so much and I think it's brilliant and I want people to be able to see it or or link to it somehow. So I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Another question I I really enjoy asking people is what does success mean for you? Often, okay, well, what does matter? It's a very fluid concept because the metric we're told to measure ourselves is often financial. And even if we don't consciously think we're measuring ourselves against money, There's lots of cues in our culture from housing, from owning a home, being a mother, maybe, and working, which necessitates income and childcare. There's lots of pressures to financially rate yourself. And I've been part of that. I've been doing good work, but I've had absolutely no money. A lot of artists or actors, you almost paid to do a play, paid to do something because it doesn't cover your living costs. So to get to some sort of financial place where I can support myself and my family and I'm not compromising myself creatively, that does feel like a good achievement. I'm now working much more on an internal sense of success and well-being. And as California and woo-woo as it sounds, but hey, I live here now inner peace and sense of interbeing that I'm not actually this individual hacking through a jungle trying to prove myself. No, I'm part of a movement. I'm part of a place in time and space. And my contribution, it may be storytelling, but it's in dialogue with audiences, in dialogue with collaborators. And to have the privilege to keep myself healthy and keep myself awake and keep myself alert and engaged, connected. Those things are now feeling much more like success than anything monetary or any awards. I'm looking forward to hearing more about this internal journey and, and definition of success. You're, you're such a thoughtful producer and of kind of content creating. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Last question. What's next for Sarah Soleimani? I am writing Mary Trump's story, Donald's distant niece for television. So Donald's mother was from the Outer Hebrides to Scotland, island called Lewis. English was her second language. She travelled six days on a ship, like a lot of immigrants, from Scotland to New York. And she was scrubbing toilets for about five years as a domestic servant. To really understand Donald and where he came from, we have to understand the origin story of his mother. And the first line of the book, Mary, his niece's book, is Daddy, Mummy's Bleeding because a doctor told Donald's mum that she shouldn't have any more children. She had Donald, and she caused her a lot of damage. So the first space he sort of occupied, he kind of broke. Unwittingly, obviously, he was just a fetus. But there's something in the experience of reading the book, which is kind of respite from this angry, indignant fight and rage, and actually much more of an understanding and an empathy about the conditions that would form a personality like that. 
or the conditions that would form a set of behaviours like that. And once you see peek behind the curtain, it actually feels less frightened and more actually about someone vulnerable who is connecting to people, not because they feel strong and he's strong too, but because they're vulnerable for whatever reason and connecting to him. So it's a different approach to something that Americans, I think, are quite traumatised by still. And another one I'm co-writing, a new thriller for HBO with David E. Kelly, this up-and-coming screenwriter you may, may not have heard of, which is quite a lot of fun. Yeah, there's a lot of people in entertainment who who are talented. You know, they certainly have talent. But, you know, there's not many who are like you, I don't think, that are so thoughtful, that think so deeply about others with such compassion. You, you know, your motivators are so different than the typical Hollywood crowd. And I think that really comes through so beautifully in your work. So, Sarah, I could, I mean, I really could talk to you forever and ever. Thank you so much for joining me. You are such an incredible person. You have an amazing presence. And I can see how your work connects with so, so many. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for your support. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. And what a great podcast. And I would have loved to have heard this when I was in the call center dropping things. What did we say? The joy of the drop. What a great mantra for life. Thank you. Thank you.